If it's Wednesday on Today in Ohio, Courtney Estafi is in the chair. It is Today in Ohio, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn, here with Courtney, along with Lisa Garvin and Laura Johnston. Courtney, it feels like everybody knows somebody who has COVID right now, and nobody really is worried about it. Yeah, it's just out in the world, and I guess we've all accepted that the pandemic is quote-unquote over. It's just circulating, and here we go. And if you have the, the vaccine and the boosters, you're just treating it like the flu or the cold. You're not... You don't want to get it, but you're not going to hide out in your house and not have a life to avoid it. If you get it, you get sick for a couple of days and you move on, unless you're immunocompromised or have kids under five. Just odd. It seems like we all know people that have it now. And a year ago, that would have been like a five alarm fire bell going off. And now it's like, eh. I well, and I know people living. who have had it who are like, the only reason I knew I had it is because I tested because of some other reason. You know, they, they weren't sick at all. Yeah, it's just it's just strange. Oh, well, we're not talking about COVID. We have other <laughs> stories to talk about. Let's get going. Marissa Darden is the first black woman to be confirmed as U.S. attorney in the Cleveland district, but she's not taking the job. Laura, this was a shocker yesterday. It's never happened before. Why not? Well, we don't exactly know why, because she's never talked to us um, about this job. But she did put out a statement. She said it was family that she was prioritizing her family especially after this pandemic and everything it's put us all through but she did get confirmed three weeks ago and she was nominated in november so she's had a long time to think about it um she never stepped foot in the federal courthouse in cleveland she was never sworn into office I wonder if it's a money thing. I wonder if the, the severe cut in pay, because she's a very prominent attorney and probably can make a lot of money, it, is that what hurts her family, that she can't provide the level of service? I mean, she, it just was a surprise. Mm-hmm. Sherrod Brown, of course, came out and said he supports her decision, although maybe he knows more than we do. Yeah, maybe he said, you know, he she made a personal decision. I fully res- support and respect her choice. He thanked her for her service to Ohioans. It did catch some people from surprise. Bill Edwards, who Adam Faris talked to, he's a longtime federal prosecutor, said no, no U.S. attorney had ever done this. But everybody spoke very highly of her. No one's condemning her for this decision. She said in a statement it was the honor of her career to be nominated, considered, and confirmed. And it would have been the privilege of a lifetime to serve the approximately 6 million residents of the district. District. But she said she did a lot of soul searching. She talked to her colleagues at Squire Patton Boggs and she wanted to prioritize her family. And I mean, you can't fault anyone for that. And we've talked a lot on this podcast about how COVID has changed priorities. Um, a lot of people have decided it's not worth working. You know, they've rearranged their lives because of COVID. It's just surprising. I think it came at this point when like the job was supposed to start. Yeah, I mean, she was supposed to be sworn in. After you're confirmed, you're supposed to be sworn in. And that's when I guess it kind of became real. Uh, We wish her well. It's a surprise. Back to square one. Yeah, they've got to start the whole process over again. So it's not just like they have a number two waiting in the wings that they can switch out. Well, and look, let's face it. By the time they get somebody, the term is going to be pretty short. Because if a Republican's elected president, they're going to replace them all anyway. We'll see. It's today in Ohio. Why are Ohio Republican legislators seeking to ban non-U.S. citizens from voting in municipal elections? Lisa, this seems like a dog whistle. We just want to get people to the polls. We're going to say immigrants are wrecking the country. Well, and they're not 
seeking to ban it. I think they're just reacting to a joint, well, we all know what the end game is, but they're reacting to a joint resolution that's to be released today in the Ohio Capitol to amend the Constitution to drive home the fact that illegal residents can't vote in local and state elections. It's already illegal in Ohio for non-citizens to vote in state and federal elections. There are laws in place for that. Local elections, a bit murkier. We're not really sure, you know, it's not really included. And so people have kind of taken liberties with that. Yellow Springs, a little community near Dayton, amended their village charter back in 2020 to allow non-citizens to vote on local elections and tax issues. But then they haven't enacted that yet because they got legal threats from the Secretary of State's office. But of course, the Republicans are going to pile on to this. Uh, Bill Seitz, a Republican from Cincinnati, said that uh, he referred to the Yellow Springs case as well. And he said that It's a proactive response to a trend in coastal cities. Some U.S. cities have allowed non-citizens to vote in local elections. So Republicans are trying to get ahead of that and, and stop it in its tracks. Yeah, it's it's a, a solution in search of a problem. It, you know, if Bill Seitz is behind something, you can pretty much sense that there's something wrong with it. And the guy just doesn't seem to ever be on the right side of things. This is clearly just a move to try and rally Republican voters to go to the polls in November with this phony fear that immigrants are going to take over the state. Nobody's seeking to have non-citizens vote in most places in Ohio. It's not. It's not really... An issue, but they, you know they fought like hell to not have the marijuana initiative on the ballot because they don't want a Democratic cause to to rally voters. But now they're trying to come up with stuff that will bring Republicans. Right, voters, right. So this is all about who to get to the polls for their little hot button issue of the year. Surprisingly, or maybe not, the Ohio Chamber of Commerce uh, supports this proposal. Um, Ohio Democratic leaders and Mike DeWine, Governor Mike DeWine, have not made any comment yet, but they're waiting till today. This is going to be introduced today, so I'm sure we'll hear more about it. Oh, I'm sure they'll all say this is much needed. We, we, you know, one of the quotes in the story said, allowing anybody to vote cheapens the, the value of being a citizen. It's, I don't even understand the logic <laughs> right. of that. It's and, you know, a lot of people, you know, does it? Oh, go ahead, Courtney. Go ahead, Courtney. No, I just, this, 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 this feels so, so this awful news from Buffalo over the weekend. Doesn't this just feel like, like fear mongering around this white supremacist idea of the great replacement theory where Democrats are trying to bring people in, you know, not, you know, to, 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 to be their voter base. This, this feels like it ties into that. I know, but really, that's not great timing for the Republicans then, because that whole white supremacy nonsense is what drove that guy to kill all those people. So they want to they want to capitalize on on the white. And it's just it's bad timing. But again, it's the, it's a dog whistle. It's the it's what happens in a gerrymandered state with a uh, outsize Republican. But here's majority. the thing about local elections, and I'm kind of inclined to agree because non-citizens do pay taxes they pay sales taxes and if they are you know if they are getting a paycheck from somebody they're paying payroll taxes so they're paying taxes in their local area some would say shouldn't they have a say on how that money is spent 
Well, if that were true, I would be able to vote in Cleveland because they've gotten a lot of my taxes over the year, and I have absolutely no say in how they spend it. But yeah, it, look, I, you can make an argument for, you can make an argument against. But the, but the central question here is, is this an issue in Ohio? And the answer no. is no, it's not. So so why do this? And it's for sinister reasons to get out the vote and do what Courtney said. Let's prey on this racist fear that immigrants are going to change the balance of power in America. It's all a bunch of nonsense. And of course, Bill Seitz's name is attached to it. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Cleveland Mayor Justin Bibb tried to bring common sense to a tax abatement program in the city, reducing it a bit in neighborhoods that are thriving and no longer need the abatements to bring investment. Why is city council thwarting him? Courtney, I thought that Justin Bibb didn't go far enough. I thought the abatements should be reduced even more in places that are thriving. So, Because why should the developers get that kind of huge profit? But the city council is going in the opposite direction. Yeah, good, good, good way to put it. So when we're talking about tax abatement here, there's different categories of, of, of properties Bib was looking at applying differing levels depending on how hot an area's real estate market is. There's also differences when it comes to the size of a home, how many units are in there. You know, when we're talking about abatements for renovation, large renovations of projects, council dialed back the the graduated approach that, that Bib wanted to pursue here. And council pretty much is looking to grant 100% tax abatements for any home renovations, no matter where you're at, um, for one, two, and three family homes. So there are still there is still this graduated approach to abatement when it comes to new construction, but council pretty much in, in most circumstances reverted to the old policy of 100% abatement for renovation. I, I just... The whole idea of this, this is an old program. Cleveland was moribund. Nobody was moving into it. And they created a program saying, look, you move into Cleveland in a new house or a heavily renovated house, you, you don't have taxes for 15 years. It worked. It got lots of investment. But now you have pockets of the city that thrive. University Circle is exploding. Ohio City, Tremont, they don't need to attract people anymore. So why give the developers that extra money when they don't need it and why not just focus in the areas that are doing poorly does this get back to each council person represents a certain set of neighborhoods and they all want theirs you know carrie mccormick is represents downtown which you could argue may not need as much in the way of abatement so is he just no i want mine i want mine instead of looking at the greater good no no i i i would think quite the opposite for that carrie mccormick's been outspoken for years about even though it benefits his areas that it needs changes um they did leave in place an 85 percent step down abatement for renovations in those hotter neighborhoods like most of carrie mccormick's ward but you know the reason council dialed back these changes for renovations was really premised on we've got aging housing stock in the city we want to encourage people to renovate the homes i mean there's not a lot of new builds in many neighborhoods in this in the city so they want to to yeah. bring up the housing stock so, so yes. that's why they've returned to this 100 percent abatement when it comes to renovations no it it's fine in the neighborhoods that are are week that that don't have a lot of investment the abatement program is great i mean it, you know but but if i'm a developer and i get the big abatement by building in tremont versus 
build, you know, building in Huff, I'm going to make a lot more money in Tremont. But if the abatement is weighted more so that there's a bigger inducement to go and build in Huff, then I'm more likely to invest there. What they've done by dialing it back is reduce the chances developers will look to some of the neighborhoods that need greater help. It just seems short-sighted. I thought Justin Bibb's plan was enlightened. I just thought he, the, the abatement amounts were still too high in the uh, wealthier neighborhoods. And, and I think you said they expect to continue to weaken this in the coming days, right? Yeah, so, so, so we, we could see more changes coming in the next few days, it seems. Council's concerns largely revolved around what Bibbs' graduated approach would do to, you know, the, the middle markets, Lee Harvard, Old Brooklyn, Collinwood. Um, so their changes would be addressed at, 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 at allowing these projects to go forward in neighborhoods like those, but but it, it would flatten the abatement back to what it was under, you know, for the last decade or so, back to the policy it's been, except for, in some instances, in Ohio City, Tremont, Detroit, Shortway University Circle. So they're 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 finding some middle ground here. I, I I what they're looking at seems to be in the middle of what we've had before and what Bibb's proposing going forward. But let me ask you this, because it has seemed that Bibb and the council president Blaine Griffin have worked together on a few things, like wiping the records clear of people charged with marijuana offenses. It doesn't seem like they did that here. Why Why wouldn't Bibb have talked to Griffin on about these issues and kind of come to an agreement on it instead of going this route? You know, all I can say is it appears that that's what's happening now is it's in the legislative process. I, I, I can't say why this wasn't ironed out ahead of time, I think, New council and new administration is still ironing out perhaps their working relationship in some cases here. But that process, you know, the administration w- did say that, you know, they talked to council and and kind of look at these proposed changes as this moves through the legislative process and see where they can essentially compromise. But we're watching the sausage get made in, in public instead of doing it yeah. on the front end. That's a good, too. It's good to have this as a public debate. You're listening to Today in Ohio. How much does the Cleveland Clinic say it would have had to spend to save the Cleveland Playhouse? Laura, we talked about the Cleveland Clinic is going to demolish this thing that they've owned for some years now because they have huge campus expansion plans, a lot of investment. But this little detail came out that gave you more of a reason why this building that some consider historic will come down. Right. They said it's going to cost $40 million to update. And that was the estimate they gave to residents on Monday night at this community meeting called by the nonprofit Fairfax Renaissance Development Corporation, because obviously not everyone is in favor of tearing this down. There's already a petition to try to save the playhouse. And that organization serves the historic majority black neighborhood near the clinic's campus just to the south and obviously when you refer to this it's we're talking about 1.3 billion dollars worth of construction projects a couple new specific hospitals and there aren't exact plans for what they're going to do with the space for the playhouse but they said that the space is currently too carved up not easy to reuse and they said something about systematic equipment and structural deficiencies i'm not sure exactly what that means but they're talking about creating a multi-use development on the site 
maybe um, a new parking garage, and then some smaller scale buildings. Because right now the Cleveland Clinic is massive, right? Like all of these hospital buildings are just kind of gargantuan proportions, and they want to ease it back into the neighborhoods and maybe have some on-street retail and things that the neighborhood could actually use and, and, and make it not so intimidating a start to the clinic campus. There's still a lot of people that are arguing against tearing it down, right? There's a petition on move.org that has thousands of signatures. Exactly. So, I mean, the thing is, there's not a lot of venues that you can go through to stop it because it's not part, it's not a historic building considered. It's not part of a city historic district. So the city doesn't have that much sway here. Um, This, I mean, the Playhouse is a, um, it's a 12 acre complex and the clinic bought it in 2009, I believe, the Playhouse then moved to Playhouse Square in 2012, and the clinics used the facility for storage, logistics, police training, administration. So I think this has been coming for a long time, but this is kind of like the, yep, we're going to do it. All right. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Is it a symbolic move, or do the Democrats in Columbus think they have a chance of guaranteeing abortion rights to women in Ohio? Lisa, this was another one of the proposals that came out of Columbus yesterday to get something on the ballot, probably less likely than the previous ones. And, uh, yeah, they're not holding out any hope. They're just doing it really, as you said, as a symbolic move. Democratic uh, Senator Sandra Williams of Cleveland said that this is a proposed constitutional amendment to guarantee access to contraceptives and uh, contraceptives and abortion to all Ohioans. She says, though, she's not naive enough to believe that it will pass because of Ohio's supermajority in the legislature. There are two ways to amend the state Ohio Constitution. Uh, the General Assembly has to propose it as a joint resolution and it must be adopted by three-fifths of the members of both chambers. And then it's filed with the Secretary of State about 90 days before the election date, and then voters get to decide. The other way is citizen-initiated. There are two rounds of signature gathering, including one that would require over 420,000 valid signatures by July 6th. That would be the deadline to get it on the November ballot. But currently there are no talk there is no talk of any citizen initiated uh initiative there will be i bet once the supreme court rules it won't be for this year it'll be for next year we had a reader suggest that that because people really don't know what life was like before roe Mm -hmm. v wade before the supreme court recognized an absolute constitutional right of women to have abortions uh, what was life like? How hard was it? So that's a great idea. And we've been looking in the archives. We published one yesterday that really gives you a feel for what it what it was like. There, it was a magazine story in which they went deep in interviewing two women, one who opted not to have the abortion and one who opted to have it. And in both cases, it went through the steps as they approached having an abortion um, how how they did it. I mean, it was illegal at the time, but everybody with the means could still get it done. Uh, we have other stories we'll be publishing. There was a group of religious leaders in Cleveland that put together a hotline to counsel women with unwanted pregnancies, but if needed, ultimately help them get to a place where they could have abortions. That That's what life will be like in, in the future if we don't get this constitutional amendment or something 
something like it. It's pretty chilling. And public opinion here in Ohio, there was a 2019 Quinnipiac poll that said that 55% of Ohioans believe that abortion should be legal in most or all cases. That figure is much higher nationally. I believe it's closer to 63%, but don't quote me on that. I know it's over 60%. So basically, overturning Roe v. Wade is kind of going in the against the will of the people. Yeah, it is, it's very much going against the will of the people. What the Supreme Court's doing is reversing 50 years of their predecessors saying this is a constitutional right to say it's not. It's a, it's a remarkable reversal that has, that has infuriated large numbers of people. That's why I suspect it'll be, it'll be built into the Ohio Constitution. The legislature won't do it because we're gerrymandered, but the people ultimately will, and I think Ohio would vote for it in big numbers. You're listening to Today in Ohio. It's good news for the bottom line, but is it bad news for children and seniors at risk? What's the word on the Cuyahoga County budget, Courtney? Yeah, it's looking like the county's forecasting a surplus for the year so far based on numbers we have already. You know, they're looking at bringing in about or having at the end of the year 1.64 billion dollars. And that's about a two and a half percent increase over what they were projecting when they set the budget. You know, some of that is owed to stronger sales tax collections than what the county expected. Some of that's owed to more property tax collections than the county expected. But a good chunk of it, according to the budget director, is, you know, under understaffing when it comes to social service agencies like DCFS, the Division of Senior and Adult Services and Job and Family Services. Yeah, they need more than 300 social workers. That's 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 paralyzing. I mean, how many kids uh, abuse cases are not getting investigated and being cared for because they need more than 300 social workers? So, yeah, they're saving a bundle of money. But how much suffering is the result of that? Well, and we've seen what understaffing at county county operations can do when we saw what happened in the jail a few years ago. A lot of that was because of understaffing. And, you know, I will say DCFS, it, it, it is a struggle for the county to hang on to social workers. That is a long understood, longstanding problem. And, you know, I, I imagine the pressures on the labor market that all employers are facing are not being kind to, to government workers. And perhaps this is fallout from that. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a horrible job. You really have to consider it a calling. The pressures are enormous. And if you ever make a mistake, if you ever put a kid back with a parent because you think it's best and then the, the child gets killed, you know, everybody looks at you like it's your fault. There, we, we ask these folks who don't make all that much money to make the decisions like Job, you know, and it's just not, it's, it's a horrible kind of pressure. So you're right. It's probably that people can do other jobs where it's not that much pressure. Uh, it's, I think it's one of the reasons we're down police officers, too. Good points. It's today in Ohio. Is Cuyahoga County's last heritage farm going to make it? How badly will it be hurt by losing acres to a highway ramp? Laura, we've talked about this before. What's the latest? Yeah, we don't know if they're going to make it. The family doesn't know. They sold a one-and-a-half-acre slice to Brexville for $331,500 to create the southbound ramp at Miller Road that's going to serve 
Valor Acres and the new Sherwin-Williams Research and Development Facility because right now there's only northbound ramps and this one is on, it's obviously it's on I-77. So they were able to work with the city to take a smaller parcel than originally envisioned and they said they're grateful to the mayor for how how he helped make it work but they don't know about the noise and the loss of that land how it's going to affect him and this is just really disheartening because they got through this and now there's a bigger threat a proposed new road and industrial park by ray fog building methods and that would connect miller to snowville road and cut right through the middle of the farm and you've got to be like oh geez like they escaped one thing and now it's another so what happens will they make I don't, it I, I, I don't know. I mean, this is a farm, and, and heritage farm is, it means it's been with the same family for more than 100 years. It's the last one in Cuyahoga County. It used to be a dairy farm established in the 1800s, and now, and it was 140 acres. Now it's down to 20 acres, and they've got horses, and they, they draw people from around the world to come there. So it depends if those people still want to come or if they feel like, you know, they're just like an exit on the highway. I think that'll be a big question. And then then what happens with this road, which is still going through city council right now? I got to say, there are plenty of roads that connect those there. I don't know that you need to go through the last farm in Cuyahoga County just to make it a little easier to get to an industrial park. Okay. It's today in Ohio. So maybe Lake Catholic High School is that rare school that actually needs critical race theory as a curriculum. I mean, what are they teaching the students there anyway? A controversy had people buzzing after a meeting of Lake Catholic's lacrosse team with Orange High School. Lisa, what's the controversy? Well, there's and there's a lot of different stories going on and we still don't I I don't think we've quite gotten to the bottom of it yet. But there was a game on Monday, the 16th between Orange and Lake Catholic High Schools the lacrosse teams were playing. It was noticed that a Lake Catholic player had a swastika image drawn on his calf and it was caught on camera. Interesting story though. Rachel Glazer, she is a senior at Orange High. She's the student photographer for the school. She noticed that there was some chatter on the sidelines and then she that's how she learned about the swastika on the player's leg but she couldn't find it at first Um, and apparently during the third quarter of the game the Lake Catholic players huddled up and apparently erased it off the guy's leg so when Rachel went through her photographs to look for it she couldn't find it but going through her earlier images she did catch it and it's the photo that everyone has seen um, showing it on the guy's calf so and Glazer who, who is Jewish herself she says well yeah I'm Jewish. This really kind of upsets me. Both schools jumped into action. The superintendent of Orange, Dr. Lynn Campbell, uh, sent a letter to parents and community members saying, you know, this is a terrible thing that Lake Catholic High School is investigating. Lake Catholic sent a similar letter to their students and parents. So yeah, I mean, I think both of them are horrified about it. We don't know the student's name. Not sure that we need to. We don't know why it was done. Obviously, the players noticed it because they erased it. So, yeah, this is kind of a, a developing story. By the way, Orange did win that game 19-7. to I know. It's just kind of remarkable. Anti-Semitism in a, in a lacrosse game. Uh, I, it's just you, you have to – what were they thinking? And what was the coach thinking? And it, it boggles the mind. And the whole – the community erupted on it. I mean, it was all over Facebook and – 
uh, even the Catholic Diocese itself right. put out a statement to say, you know, this doesn't stand. We're investigating. Right. But wow. Well, I, um, you know, it all leads back to what we just saw in Buffalo. You know, and there a, a lunatic white supremacist plotted for months to go in and massacre black people. And he did. And and you, when you see that kind of thing and you see Tucker Carlson touting his white supremacist theories, is this a result that some kid at Lake Catholic is now a white supremacist and putting a Nazi symbol on his leg during a, a school contest? And, uh, you know, you have to wonder, was it a joke? Did they think it was funny? Were they making a statement? I mean, you just never know with teenage boys. But, I mean, I, obviously they knew it was wrong because they it, during the game they tried to, they did. They took it off of his leg so they knew there was an issue. But, yeah, this is just, it's very disheartening. Swastikas are not funny. They're never going to be funny. No, there's no, there's never a case where, yeah, so, okay, it's today in Ohio. Why are mortgage companies reducing their workforces so suddenly? Courtney, there's lots of places that are desperate to get workers, but mortgage companies are actually that rare industry that's cutting back. Why? Yeah, you can thank raising, rising interest rates for that, right? So reporter Sean McDonald reports that, there's there's this purging of employees from the industry because much of the activity when you see low interest rates like we've seen for the last two years during the pandemic, you know, a lot of the booming business there is tied to refinancing, not the issuing of new home mortgages for first time buyers. The refinancing market, now that interest rates are, are going up, that market's now plummeting. And so there's a need to get rid of these workers, even though, you know, Regular mortgages are going through, but refinancing is really where the spike is in this industry. And that looks to be over now. Yeah, I mean, the, the anybody who wanted to refinance surely did when the rates got as low as they did. And so there probably won't be any kind of refinancing wave for a few years now, especially if the rates stay high. Yeah. Uh, I'm betting that the people that are losing their jobs, though, can very quickly find jobs elsewhere because, as we know, everybody is looking for workers. Yeah, maybe they can apply to be social workers. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. All right. It's today in Ohio. That does it for a Wednesday conversation. Thank you, Lisa. Thank you, Courtney. Thank you, Laura. And thank you for listening to this podcast. We'll be back Thursday to be talking about some more news. 